Welcome, everybody. I have a really special guest today on the eighth episode of The Growth Code. Um, the, my guest today is an attorney who has been quoted in Forbes magazine and various other large publications. Um, he was general counsel for the PA's governor, Tom Wolf. Uh, he started his own cryptocurrency fund called Titan Ventures. He started Philadelphia's first blockchain and cryptocurrency firm. They focus on digital assets, securities, uh, capital and cryptocurrency markets, blockchain advising, business and tech, and IP. He wrote his dissertation on cryptocurrency and the law towards the end of his law school career. Uh, please welcome a friend of mine from law school uh, and a big-time up-and-coming attorney, Andrew Bull. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ethan. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. I appreciate it. So, you know, tell us a little bit about you, you know, your background, um, what you did prior to getting into blockchain and, you know, how we got here to an extent. Absolutely. Yeah. So in undergrad, I was a political science major and was really interested in government and policy and things along those lines. And so after graduating, I worked on a couple different political campaigns for a consulting firm, things like that. And then when I got into uh, law school, it was probably about a couple of years actually before I even decided to go to law school that I started getting exposed to Bitcoin via the internet. And really I found it on the website Reddit initially. And then people started kind of talking about it in these public forums. And I basically started kind of doing a deep dive into the subject matter. And back then it was very kind of like high level stuff. There wasn't detailed information like we have today. The term blockchain didn't exist, things like that. And so as that started to progress, I kind of got more and more interested in it. And then I started participating in, in it from a purchase perspective. So I started actually buying Bitcoin and that was back in 2011 and that kind of transformed into 2012 and then entered into law school. And uh, it was kind of just a really t a big topic that I was very much interested in and started researching and, and basically just kind of went from there and started really diving into kind of the, the niche aspects of this new kind of technology that really didn't resemble anything that I had ever seen before. And so I was, I was initially intrigued in it from that perspective. And so that kind of transformed into I'm in academia. I get asked what type, type of topic I want to write about. And I basically say, I'm very much interested in this technology. It's called cryptocurrency. And by then the term blockchain was slowly starting to come and become more popularized. And uh, my professors had no idea what I was talking about, but they were like, well, it's a new emerging technology. Like, of course, we're going to let you go research it. And that really gave me kind of the time and resources to do a, a very, very deep dive into the technology, into the legality of it, and so on and so forth. And that eventually culminated into a, a thesis that I eventually published. And so from there, and even back then, I mean, I, I didn't necessarily have it in the back of my mind that this was going to be a career for me. I mean, I was in law school. Again, like I said, I was coming from this policy background, very much interested in government. And the, uh, the opportunity kind of came through a um, couple different steps, which I'll, I'll be happy to get into in a little bit in regards to what I did out after law school. Uh, but initially, yeah, it was kind of one of those things I stumbled across really and just started getting personally interested in it and then was able to do all that researching. Yeah, I mean, you touched on something which is, you know, deep dive. You know, I've done a dive into it a little bit myself and it's a rabbit hole. And, you know, I would describe it as almost like the Wild West. Uh, you know, there's, there's so much, you know, work and obviously lawyer work. So it's really, there's definitely a, a lot of opportunities. So starting from a really high level for people that don't 
or have never even heard the term blockchain before. You know, what is blockchain in the simplest way to explain it? For sure, yeah. I think of it as a efficient way of transferring information. And so if you can conceptualize what that means from a digital perspective, because without the internet, we don't necessarily have blockchain and cryptocurrency. And so a byproduct of that is that the ability to transfer information that is secure and verified is a pretty significant development comparatively to how the internet functioned previously before blockchain. And so a really good example that I kind of always bring up is, say I draft a PDF on my computer and then I send it to you, Ethan, right? Ethan receives the PDF. How do you actually prove that that document came from me initially and that I was the primary source on that document? There's plenty different inventions and ways that people have kind of developed over time, but they've kind of all had shortcomings regarding the security around them. Because realistically, there's a lot of vulnerabilities in me using email to send it to you, or maybe I'm airdropping it to you, whatever, things like that. And so blockchain really kind of created a technology that just allows for a secure way of transferring information. And the way that it initially started was financial information. So actual value, a store of value. And that's really where Bitcoin came into play. Because for those who don't know, Bitcoin was basically a, a research paper that was published by an anonymous individual and our group that detailed a computer software program. And from there, there was a lot of development and then running the software platform program on computers that allowed the Bitcoin blockchain to actually start to exist and to function. And so when I kind of reference this generic, it's a secure way of transferring information, Bitcoin is such a good example of transferring a store of value, just like we conceptualize if I want to send you a wire transfer or if I want to take out cash out of the ATM and hand it to you for a payment or something like that. And so that's kind of the high level conceptual point that I always start with is that it's very much a much more efficient way of transferring information compared to the way that we transferred information before. Yeah, that's that's a really good high level explanation. It's hard to like... Now, the one that I've kind of tried to use is, you know, Bitcoin to blockchain is like email to the internet. It's just one sort of application built on top of this web. Um, and there's so many things you can do on the web, but, you know, Bitcoin and email sort of was like the pioneer of it all. Um, but is that is that accurate sort of in the way that you're kind of explaining it? For sure, yeah. And w there have been so many subsequent developments like, for example, you reference email, like imagine how now the internet has transformed telecommunications or like the way we send other type of information outside of email. Just like that, Bitcoin is very much this like kind of singular function in finance. And now we have all these other applications, everything from the transference of personal privacy information, my healthcare information or something like that is a really good example or storing the records of actual real assets outside of finances such as like real property and things like that and so yeah that's such a good example it really kind of you can think of blockchain as the tracks right and then bitcoin is one of many many trains that run across it just like the email example yeah that's that's awesome um so tell us about you know you talked about the rabbit hole of reddit and how you found bitcoin so what about it appealed to you so much that you know you really just had to dive deeper into it. Yeah, for sure. So I really liked the aspect of it where there was no third party control. 
And so I kind of found that fascinating because for those who have a, a cursory understanding of economics and the way the stock market works and global economics as well, there's always kind of a, a tipping point where you realize a lot of this is controlled by a very, very small amount of individuals and groups in the world. And so Bitcoin kind of presented this alternative of a functionality that really stemmed from a larger group of people, almost a community element component of it that really allowed for much more of a transparent way of, like I said, sharing information. But really when I was getting very much interested in the Bitcoin, it, it was kind of this idea that okay, this is an alternative to the way that we've been dealing with cryptocurrency or actual traditional currency dating back to barter and trade before cryptocurrency even existed. And so realistically, like digital payments was kind of like a very, very small step. And then cryptocurrency came into the fray and you have Bitcoin that is this prime example of no third party control and really is dictated by these large consensus agreements between all of the individuals acting. It's almost like if you took the banking system and instead of individual private entities owning the banks, everyone in the world had a small sliver of ownership in the bank and could use that sliver to vote to decide, oh, banks can loan interests at this rate or something like that. It's kind of this one of those things that I really found this as kind of one, it could be very, very helpful for a lot of the unbanked, which was intriguing also from the beginning and has been, this concept has been around for a long time where people have said that for those who are in countries like Venezuela or Zimbabwe, where their national currency is hyperinflated into oblivion and really has no value, then this presents an alternative because it, hey, it is a store of value. And now there's significant volatility as we've seen, because again, it's a nascent market, it's new, and not a lot of people have access to it, but eventually the underlying premise of it is that there's really no third party control over it. Yeah, I mean, what's amazing about what you just touched on is, you know, in Zimbabwe, where it costs a million dollars to get a newspaper or whatever it is, you know, if you have a, people in Zimbabwe do have access to the internet, they do have access to a cell phone, potentially. If you have access to the internet, you have access to Bitcoin, decentralized access to value, which is really what I think is amazing. So. Uh, jumping around a little bit, um, what are some interesting future applications that you see uh, this industry disrupting? I mean, right now we're seeing a war in social media, for example, you know, because it's centralized. So tell me about what are some industries that you think that this could tap in, not necessarily just social media, but, you know, go for it. Yeah, for sure. So just to that social media point, I'll start there and kind of trickle down. I was just reading the, the recent article about Facebook and the issues that they're having right now in terms of the information that they choose to show and the information they choose not to. And blockchain in of itself really presents a, a very real world solution to that issue in that these individuals or private companies such as Facebook wouldn't necessarily have the ability to dictate the filtration of information that is being accessed by the individuals on the platform. And so blockchain not only creates an opportunity to create a transparency component where whatever entity is operating on their social media platform, they can still have a privatized platform, but there's an extra element of accountability on them from the user base. Because the blockchain presents an example where the information as it's transferred, as it's actually received 
by the social media entity, whoever it is, and then transfer it and distribute it into the public realm, that process and that information tracking process is verified and also can be checked by the users who are participating on the platform, which is really not how the current social media environment exists. I mean, we have Twitter taking down tweets or Facebook maybe leaving up posts that they that people think that they shouldn't be leaving up and stuff like that and the terms of service and so on and so forth. And so one of the considerations there is kind of not necessarily like completely throwing out this element of privatized social media, but almost just putting an extra layer of transparency on the individuals who are operating in those companies. So I really see that as kind of a, a very large significant impact that the technology is like, and there's already slowly starting to see very, very small applications in this space. And I think eventually it could really get to the point where there are a lot of companies that are relying on this technology to ensure that they are being transparent to their communities. And it might even be a scenario that we enter into where user bases will have a lot more power in that they can leave and go to another base or another social media platform if this one's not implementing or instituting the right transparency perspectives using blockchain. So that's like, I think probably one of the, one of the better examples in regards to social media. And then the other examples outside of that, I mean, there's a, a lot of them. Uh, uh, CO2 emissions, I, I recently saw an application where somebody create a blockchain app that was actually tracking CO2 emissions from private companies. And I mean, dating back to wasn't that long ago that Volkswagen had that huge scandal and suffered a significant amount of fines. Not that it seemed to really impact the company that much, but they had to pay a lot of money because they were changing the actual numbers and the carbon emissions that their cars were producing. And so a blockchain application or a third-party blockchain application that is adopted by a company like that would wholly prevent that from occurring. Because again, it would be putting another set of eyes that isn't incentivized to be in the company from a monetary perspective and use a technology that ensures that that information is protected simultaneously allowing access to it from other people. So yeah, I think that's a really good application. The, the digitization of assets, I think as well, I mean, with cryptocurrency is kind of, I think, the, the initial first step. And eventually we're going to get to the point where Apple isn't issuing continually new forms of stock. Instead, they're issuing digital versions of their stock. Yeah. And I, that's kind of a, a really massive, massive industry that's, that's already growing and will continue to grow. Yeah. I mean, from real estate, I know you've worked with some real estate clients um, who are creating uh, some sort of tokenized way to distribute their real estate. I know that there's um, ways to theoretically, if there could be a Google that you could go onto and it could pay its users searching as opposed to Google for the ads. You know, there's, there's a lot of different applications where it's just transparency, visibility, and understanding what you're getting. Right. So, you know, I'm on the same page as you. I think it could really change so much of what we already know. Right. So, you know, what does a typical client look like for you? And what does a typical day look like? Yeah, for sure. So we do a lot of transactional legal work. For those of you who don't know what that means, it means we are not going to court that often. And we're doing a lot of legal documentation, uh, filings with governmental regulators, and ensuring our clients stay out of trouble in terms of what type of industry they're operating in and the activities that they're conducting. And so a really good example in going to the real estate one that you just mentioned, Ethan, is I have one client who has basically created a marketplace that allows people who own real estate to list their real estate properties on the marketplace 
and be able to actually what's called tokenizing it in that the value, whatever it is, let's say you have a house that's worth a dollar, then you could tokenize it and that there are however many tokens you want that represent that dollar. And then that can be sold to investors or individuals, retail consumers on the platform. And so that's kind of a really good example of the kind of sharing slash gig economy that we're experiencing so many different ways in our daily lives now that allows somebody to potentially own a home, but maybe they just partially own a home and they have help paying off the mortgage. And somebody is also going to benefit from the increase in value of that property by purchasing a percentage of the tokens on this marketplace. And so there's, there's a kind of a, a unique asset component to this industry, specifically for real estate, where real world assets like cars, houses, things like that are not only being tracked on the blockchain, but also being divided up more than they were in the past in terms of their value. I mean, what, like 10 years ago, if we were talking about the, the revelation that Uber and Lyft brought into this industry in terms of people just using their own cars, people would be like, whoa, that's crazy. Like, no one's going to use their own car. Who wants to get in someone else's car? And like, it's just changed so drastically. And so what we're definitely going to see in the future is the fractionalization of those types of real world assets as well. Um, so that's a really good example of a client. Uh, we also have like cryptocurrency exchanges. Some of those are clients where consumers can go on, get verified, purchase cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Uh, we have other ones that are running mining operations. We have other ones that are uh, entering into like PayPal-esque payment platforms where they're allowing people to actually process payments using cryptocurrency, uh, which I think is actually pretty beneficial because it's exposing it to more people. And I think at the end of the day, this industry is very much one of those industries. And having been in it for a while, I've seen kind of the ups and downs and seeing so many people kind of once they catch that bug and come to that aha moment and that kind of like initial understanding, it's just so exciting to see how kind of intrigued they are by this technology. Um, and then as far as kind of like what a day looks like, a lot of times we're drafting documents, providing the client services, communicating with clients, talking to regulators, making filings with regulators, stuff that isn't super exciting at the end of the day, but uh, obviously is much needed for the industry to keep moving forward. That's great. So, you know, some people that listen to this podcast are you know, trying to figure out how to market their business. So how do you get these cases? Is it, I know that you speak at a lot of places. I know that you are definitely known in the industry, but, you know, tell me how you bring in your business. Yeah, for sure. So I think that <clears throat> definitely public speaking, that's one way. And especially early on when the industry was not nearly as popular as it's becoming now, it's still, still niche, still specific, but even before dating back to like 2016 or something like that, it was like nobody really cared about it, not even regulators. And so then it was kind of just like boots on the ground, going to events, talking to people about it, making sure that you're going to these events and speaking publicly and having some topic to actually address with other individuals. And then also online marketing, for sure. So using targeted websites, that type of stuff. I mean, obviously Google ads, things like that. That The combination of those two kind of was what boosted our initial exposure early on and and also one of the things was, I mean, I worked in the industry as a non-lawyer. And so the industry then was significantly smaller than it is now. And so it was very easy to kind of network and get to know people. And there was a lot of people kind of coming at it from different angles in that they were coming from so many different industries. And so that kind of created an initial network that has somewhat reverberated out as time goes on. 
Have you ever thought about utilizing the power of social media for your marketing? Yeah, for sure. I've thought about it before. And uh, I, I mean, honestly, it's kind of like a, a timing thing. It's like you've got to balance the amount of work that you do as well as how much you're putting into the advancement of the business. And so that, that's something, I mean, I, I every now and again, we post articles, we kind of write about in-depth topics, things like that. Uh, and then we also sometimes we'll get called up to comment on a topic for someone else who's writing an article, things like that. Um, and then also, I mean, I use LinkedIn quite often, post on that quite often in terms of kind of just my responses or maybe perspectives about maybe there was a judicial decision or like, for example, Facebook's cryptocurrency that they were potentially going to release that had all this controversy around it and was in the news. We weighed in on that. And so kind of discussing that type of stuff. Um, but I haven't really gotten into the uh, the other forms of social media, which I definitely I realize are are very viable ways of kind of marketing yourself for sure. And, uh, and it's something I'm very interested in. I feel like you could be a, a total killer blockchain influencer right now. So, <laughs> I mean, the way that people learn this stuff is by being explained it the way you're explaining it right now. And that's that's really the goal with social media is whoever provides the most value seems to you know earn the most trust and then eventually seems to you know bring in the most clients so you know, i think you'd be great at it um so can you tell me about uh any clients you currently represent or you know that you think are particularly interesting other than ones we've discussed already yeah for sure so i have one client they're called steam monsters and uh this is an area of blockchain that not too many people really know about is gaming and so I'm sure there has been like some random tech article that maybe has come across the airwaves for somebody and they've just been like, oh, well, I'm not going to read that right now. But uh, a lot of games have been now created on the blockchain because at the end of the day, it is a functioning software development platform. And so these people, I have these two guys, this client, and they w were pretty early on as well. And they chose a specific blockchain that is actually a, a social media structured blockchain, the Steam blockchain. And so it's kind of uh, similar to, right, like similar to Reddit, but it, it's very, very community driven and people post articles and they get uploaded and downvoted, but they actually get rewarded based on the actual legitimacy of their content, as you were just referencing, uh, through the token that is applied to that platform. And so these guys, they built a card trading game. And basically, they have actual now physical versions of the card, but really what their bread and butter is, is that they have digital versions of these trading card games that actually is a game. And so it's a deck building game where you can acquire cards, you win cards by entering into these tournaments that they host. And it's very, very similar to kind of like traditional games like Magic the Gathering, things like that. And uh, I've kind of found it fascinating because it was not necessarily something I really had too much information or knowledge in, but to see growth of that area of the industry has really been fascinating. And I, and I think especially with the advancement of esports in general, I mean, I feel like that industry in of itself is ripe for a significant- You have an message. Sorry about that. So, you know, I, I kind of, I'm curious, is there a difference between Steam monsters and like NFTs, like CryptoKitties? So no, not really. That's kind of like a really good example, actually, a synonymous example where there is like <laughs> you said, the non-token where 
you're proving ownership. Like you're like, just like I have a, say I pull like a baseball card, like a Ken Griffey Jr. baseball card or something like that, something that's really rare. And I want to make sure that I have ownership over it. And they are basically doing it from the inverse and having digital versions of it, using the blockchain to secure that ownership, that right to ownership. And then the person who ever owns the card has this very specific code that proves that they actually have ownership over that card. And so things like CryptoKitties, I mean, CryptoKitties was kind of one of the most popularized examples of this where people were very much interested in acquiring these non-fungible tokens because it's a fun, and it, I mean, CryptoKitties is a game in of itself. Like you can breed the cats, things like that. And uh, also those, some of those cats go for a significant amount of money these days. And so that, that's kind of, there's a trading element to it as well. And so, yeah, absolutely. That's like a really good example that's, that's very similar. CryptoPunks was probably one of the earlier iterations of that, that NFT type thing. Totally. So um, let's talk about some of the bad stuff. So tell our entrepreneurs who are trying to start a business or at square zero right now, a mistake you made that you definitely could help somebody avoid. For sure. Yeah. So I think that one of the things that I've kind of reflected upon, especially when it was early on, was the, the timing of everything. Because realistically, like there are standardizations that have been put into the industry in terms of when you need to do fundraising and when you need to make sure you get to a, a point of capital return that is sufficient in order to sustain your business and so on and so forth. And there's kind of all these random sayings that you hear about that like you need profits for five years before you're an actual business or like 90% of startups fail or things like that. And I really think that if you kind of structure your plan in a very comprehensive way and really map it out in the future, you're never going to do what you plan out to do. It's going to be something totally different. And so it's helpful to do something like that. But I think one of the things that I did early on was, especially in regards to the businesses on the non-legal side, was I set too high expectations to achieve in a short period of time. And I wasn't able to achieve those things because of a lot of times factors out of my control. Maybe it was market factors because the value of Bitcoin wasn't increasing high enough in a short period of time or something like that. Or maybe it wasn't decreasing fast enough or something like that. And so, or you're waiting on, for example, in the mining example, like you're waiting on hardware to be shipped from another state. And that in the time period that it gets to you, you have now lost the money that you invested in that hardware because it's worthless. So like making kind of snap judgments about the timing and when things are going to happen. It's just like if you can take a step back and try to mitigate as much risk in terms of your decision making, in terms of the success of the business and not hinge it on these like very, very specific finite time periods, I think you really can do yourself a, a, a legit service in that regard. I think that's a really, really insightful point. You know, it's sort of like structure it, but embrace for, you know, something different to come at you. Right. It's like you don't want to be disorganized and not put your idea on paper, but at the same time, you know, don't be too fixated on it when a curveball comes. I think that's that's really insightful. I, I even appreciate that advice. So, right. and I think like a subcomponent of that is that making sure that you know and or make sure you pivot when you need to. 
because if you just beat that thing into the ground and continually and it's not working, it's not working, it's not working, that's another component of the timing of it all is that if there's another opportunity, you want to make sure that you calculate it. And if it's not the right decision, it's not the right decision. But a lot of times there's a time period or point that you can get to where you're like, all right, this is an opportunity. I need to take it and run. Yeah, I totally get it. So, you know, what would you say was your low point and what did you do to come out of it either as an attorney or as a professional? Yeah, for sure. So I think that especially early on in the, so I, I ran a, a fund that was comprised of only cryptocurrencies as well as a mining operation. And so I think that one of the aspects, and this kind of goes back into the timing topic that we just discussed, but in a little different way in that a lot of times the success of businesses is very much structured around the timing of the industry. And I think that, I mean, I reflect on that constantly in regards to the success of my law firm. I really think that the industry, had I started it in 2012, it would not nearly have be have been successful comparatively to say 2016, 2017, because the industry just wasn't there. The client base wasn't there. Not enough people knew about it. Regulators didn't care. There wasn't any type of precedent that was set, things like that. And so when I think about kind of the business side of things in regards to the mining and the fund, it was very much that while we were early on in the industry, I think that we were kind of too early to a certain extent in regards to the investing opportunities that were being presented in the cryptocurrency market. And so, and, and also missed opportunities for sure. I mean, we, from a timing perspective, riding into the ICO boom in 2017, for those of you who don't know, that was a, the initial coin offering boom in 2017 was where a lot of companies raised a significant amount of money and people who owned the tokens of those companies also made a lot of money. And that caused actually a lot of subsequent legal issues that we're still dealing with today. But the timing of that and the decision-making, like you needed to kind of make sure that you were making effective decision-making in that time period. And I think in certain circumstances I did, but in other circumstances, I was too hesitant to pull the trigger. I didn't want to take that risk. And that really ended up resulting in me not necessarily kind of achieving the overall amount of success that I potentially could have. And I was even in the environment. I think that's kind of the unique perspective is that people always kind of reflect on being like, Oh, I wasn't a part of it. I missed out or something like that. And I'm like, well, you can miss out and be a part of it. Like it can still happen. And I said, thanks being able to make that judgment call. And so I think that I just reflect on a couple of different scenarios where I wasn't willing to pull the trigger and it, it definitely made me miss opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I can totally agree with that. You know, it's it's a matter of while we're young, especially, you know, not being too risk averse, but not making stupid risks. You know, you may have made some risks there in the time that you're not even giving yourself credit for that you're, you know, you did take that other people totally wouldn't have even gotten near where, you know, it, it's all hindsight's twenty twenty. I could say if I got on you know, if I got into crypto three months earlier, then I would have made X amount more. If I would have gotten on TikTok, you know, a year earlier, I would have a million and a half more fans. It doesn't really, you know, you can always have more, but you know, I think you're doing pretty well for yourself. So you should definitely be proud of what you're doing. So, you know, a couple of other things. So are you an Ethereum or a Bitcoin guy? 
Yeah, so I was, uh, that's a really good question. And it's funny because there's a large debate in between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. And so when I think about Ethereum, it kind of gives me an opportunity to explain. And it, it's funny because when I talk about Bitcoin and this store of value and the financial aspect of it, I'm like, if you ask me if I'm a Bitcoin or an Ethereum guy, I'm like, in the t back of my mind, I'm like, well, that's kind of apples to oranges, one. But I, I very much like Ethereum and like Bitcoin, sure, foundationally amazing, like fantastic, has created an Right, right, exactly, for this industry. And Ethereum has kind of presented this advancement of the technology. It's, it's kind of like akin when I think of like dial-up, right? Like I think of like Bitcoin as dial-up yeah. and then like the dial-up internet connection for the, I mean, there's probably a lot of people who are too young that don't even remember dial-up connections and hearing that noise. And really then like it's kind of subsequently the, the advent of wireless internet, right? Like Ethereum for me is so advanced beyond what Bitcoin is that it's like the wireless internet yeah. in that it's a, yeah, it's a decentralized software platform that if Ethan, you and I want to create a, uh, a, some type of software program or platform, and we want to have somebody in Africa or China or anywhere in the world access it, they can do it almost instantaneously. Yeah. And that's fascinating from my perspective. And I think the Microsoft is such a good example because Microsoft and Apple, these huge tech conglomerate giants, they really, they, I mean, they started out in garages and they built this product and they started distributing it and things like that. And I'm like, man, can you imagine if you could have open sourced Windows back in 98? Like Ethereum presents an opportunity to really distribute access to something like so advanced as Windows to everyone in the world. And that's like, I mean, it's still very early on in development, but that's where the potential is going. So I guess I'm an Ethereum guy. I mean, scalability is, is, was, you know, the issue with it early, especially, and still probably, um, you know, when it first came out and I first started learning about it back in 2017, you know, it took 20 minutes to confirm a transaction and that's just, you can't do anything with that. Um, but now it's obviously, it's getting better, you know, it takes time, but you know, the example I use for that is again, it's, it's like AOL is Bitcoin or like email, the initial email. And then, you know, iOS is Ethereum. Like that's kind of the way that I think about it. Uh, and it's funny. Everyone has their own way of explaining this stuff. I love hearing everybody's little, you know, explanations for it. But talking about mining, you know, everyone's kind of heard, you know, you can kind of print money by plugging this thing in, but no one knows what the hell they're doing with it, how to do it, what's the right one. Am I getting charged more in power than I'm actually making? You know, how do you do it effectively? And, you know, how do I give them my money so I can start buying the right stuff? Yeah, right, exactly. So one of the largest lessons that I really took away from mining is that early on, if you were a uh, small business, you could potentially have success early on in the industry. And now we're just kind of too far gone. So outside of it being kind of a small hobby, if you don't have the resources, the financial leverage, as well as the access to very, very, very cheap, if not free electricity, you are most likely not going to be profitable mining in this day and age. Now, just kind of reflecting upon the one of the real benefits of mining is that when I went through that process and, and we actually built our own miners, we learned so much about the technology and we started to really understand kind of the deeper levels just solely as a byproduct of having to work with the software to run a miner or to point it towards like a, a mining pool where 
where it could then contribute its computational power and then we could potentially get a payout. And so one of the things that I always recommend is that if somebody's interested in mining, like do it on a small scale, like experience it a little bit, like don't waste too much capital because at the end of the day, if you enter into it now, you're going to be kind of just pushed out by these massive now corporations that exist all over the world that just have a, a leg up. And so that, that's really kind of something I always kind of like to reiterate in regards to mining is that you're like, you're not going to walk out tomorrow and put in 50 K into a bunch of miners and then be like, all right, now I have a hundred K in the next six months. Like this is not going to happen realistically. And so one of the things about it is that there are very real world businesses that are doing it. But at the same time, there's a significant amount of risk in terms of hardware depreciation. Cause for those of you who don't know, the way that miners work, they have a very, very short life cycle because the algorithm of whatever coin you're mining, the required amount of computational power, like the actual power that the miner provides to the network is going to increase every time there's a payout, which means you have to continually buy more and more miners in order to keep up with that trend. And so that is sometimes not a sustainable business model unless you have a significant amount of upfront capital and as well as your access to electricity because you're paying for electricity you're paying for potential rent housing things like that and so at the end of the day it, it, there's a lot of upfront considerations there and so I kind of experienced it firsthand having a smaller business and luckily we started early enough where we did make money but at the same time like we weren't able to sustain that over like a five-year period time because we couldn't keep up with those larger companies that makes sense so basically stay, stay away from this one right now would be kind of what I heard. Yeah. Unless you have a ridiculous amount of, you know, capital to burn and do it the right way and maybe have a solar powered van somewhere, you know, be careful. Yeah, you need a hydro plant. That'd be really helpful. <laughs> so, you know, last piece of advice for anyone that wants to learn more about blockchain. Do you have any books that people should read, articles people should start on? Or, you know, what, what is the, the best place for blockchain for dummies? Yeah, so Nathaniel Popper is a, a New York Times writer, and he wrote Digital Gold. And I read that when it first came out and found it to be fascinating because it might not give you a really, really deep technical perspective, but I think, in my personal opinion, nine times out of ten, most people don't need that. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like, blockchain is significant, but, like, your initial introduction to it shouldn't be this very, very technical, heavy amount of information. And so digital is such a great way to like not only get kind of wrapped up in how the technology came about and also a lot of controversial, potentially illegal things that occurred early on, but it also gives you a great perspective in kind of layman's terms of how to really understand the industry. So that's, that's a really a, a great resource in, in my opinion in that regard. And then MIT actually offers now, they've open sourced their course on cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Yeah. It's just a one-on-one course, and it's great. I mean, Are you I, willing I, to send me a link for that so I can post it on this podcast? For sure, yeah. Okay, great. I'll post a link of that book. I'll post a link of that podcast, or I'm sorry, of that of that course. And uh, anything else that you have for our listeners today? No, yeah. I think at the end of the day, it, it's funny because when I was thinking about leaving kind of traditional legal practice and entering into a, a very new industry, there was a lot of risk that I was weighing and I, I kind of reflected upon a lot in regards to what my passion was and what I was interested in. And at the end of the day, if you're lucky enough to have that opportunity, I always kind of say go for it because regardless of whether you fail early on, it might open up other opportunities that could really be beneficial in the future for you. Totally. 
Well, you were, uh, you were awesome. Thanks for your time. Um, hopefully I'll get you back on here at some point in the future when, uh, you know, you're changing, changing the law for the entire country on this subject. So, um, I will, I will put Andrew's website link right below. I will put all the links he mentioned. And if you want to get in touch with him, I'll put his email on here too. So thanks, Andrew. I really appreciate it. That was a great episode. Thanks, Ethan. Really appreciate it too. Thanks for having me.